0: We're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. We're back with another episode. (laughs) And this one's about someone who has been so influential in all sectors of life including psychology, psychedelia, magic. This guy's just like literally all over the place. You read these books from all these different people. Everybody's quoting him. He's the coolest guy of all time, perhaps, or one of them. Nobody actually gets that title. Carl Jung. That's right. We are doing a seance and we're summoning Carl Jung. No, but what we are doing is listening to a very rare recording. In fact, we're going to listen to two very rare recordings from the late fifties towards the end of Carl Jung's life and then talk about it. So we're going to listen to these recordings and they're going to be amazing. Carl Jung. I wish he could have been on the show. Unfortunately, he's not here. And as always with our, rare lecture episodes rare speaker episodes we always have a guest with us except for once when there wasn't a guest the Terrence McKenna episode but we always have a guest Bryn Anderson of Vital Force Herbs how's it going Bryn so glad you're here
1: (laughs) thanks good
0: we're going to listen to Carl Jung. Yeah. I didn't even know there was any actual recordings of his voice. So That's I'm really. That's
1: awesome. You dug that up.
0: I'm really excited about this. Well, I've been listening to parts of it. I, uh, this is actually new to me as well. we listening to parts of it. It's, a, it's fantastic. And just to let you know, just like every other lecture episode that we do, just know that Bryn and I are listening with you to this really cool stuff, this really knowledgeable, knowledge-expanding information, we're listening to it with you. And we're taking notes like we would if he was in the room and we were at a maybe like a seminar or some other sort of lecture where you want to remember the information. You're writing it down. So that's what we do. We write it down. And then at the end, End of the lecture, we talk about what he said, the finer points, the other points, just all the points, what we thought is interesting, etc., <laughs> etc. Et I'm sure you can figure it out. So that's the run of the show. And we're going to dive into that. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go get a cup of tea. Sure. I love tea. You know, I'm a big mate drinker. Then do this. Go to BlueCobraCBD.com. That's BlueCobraCBD.com. And there you will find the highest quality CBD oil on the market. Blue Cobra CBD oil. And Why is it so special? Why? It's because the extraction, the method of extraction is a proprietary method. It's called the Hit Extraction Method. It was developed by a man named Howard Hit, aka Big H, Howard, his wife Judy, their whole family. Incredible people. They developed this. This is their family-owned business. They developed this extraction method. Howard did, actually. I'm sure, his wife helped. Support. No one else has this. And it uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural. It's 100% organic and derived from 100% organic Oregon grown hemp, which I often say is most likely the best hemp in the world. So you put all these things together, the HID extraction method, all organic components, and you get this incredibly powerful product that has so many health benefits, so many psychological benefits. You want to talk about psychology? has psychological benefits, I'm telling you. It's Blue Cobra CBD oil. We have a Blue Cobra Midnight on Earth discount code. It is M-I-D-C-B-D. Put that In the discount code box at checkout, and you get free shipping on any order, 10 bottles, 100 bottles, 1,000 bottles, in the Continental 48 United States. It will be totally free. Everywhere else, you can still get the product. I'm sorry you can't take advantage of this. However, you can still get the product, so check your country's laws. Contact Howard directly on bluecobracbd.com. His email is there, bluecobracbd at gmail.com. And really check this stuff out because there really isn't anything else like it out there. And there's R&D in the works. There's pet products in the works. He's going to revolutionize CBD products when people discover how natural and clean and perfect this extraction method is and and what kind of product is derived from it. I take it daily, I put it in my breakfast shake when I eat food. I'm kind of on a little fast right now, but I still, believe it or not, the only thing I ate in my fast, uh, three-day fast, was blue Cover CBD oil. I took like a couple drops each day, a couple dropper fulls, I should say, each day. You can put it on your body, in your body, money-back guarantee. If you don't like the product, keep the product, keep the shipping money if you paint it, And you get your money back. It's such a win, 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 win situation. There's just so much winning happening in relation to blue cover CBD. That's why I'm telling you about this. This is the entire reason. This is why I have them as a sponsor because I actually, uh, as Jake Weaver, the human being who is also Jake Weaver, the human being podcast. So there really is no difference telling you, I love this stuff blue cobra cbd.com that's blue cobra cbd.com when you're done with that follow me on instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth that is the address you can follow us there spotify apple podcasts google podcasts pod chaser there's so many now but they all have some sort of button that you can click that connects us. Click that button. Let's connect. Let me uh, introduce you to this podcast if you're new. It, you know, Come on board. It's growing every single day. We're up to 110 countries have spread. Thousands of listeners. I'm super honored. Midnightonearth.com. And now we are going to dive into this. Experience The Carl Jung experience. And the reason that Carl Jung is coming on Midnight on Earth is because, like I said, he's interwoven into all intellectual thinking. His thoughts, his quotes, his books. He created foundational psychological understandings that billions of people on Earth talk about constantly, daily. And how they relate, how they think about human behavior and how we relate to each other. They're putting most of that through what they've learned. And what they've learned is mostly from the thinking of Carl Jung. They're putting it unintentionally or inadvertently through a Jungian filter. It's mind blowing his impact. So we talk about all these various things on this show. I figured he would be the perfect guest. And just like Every other guest we have to read his bio. It's part of the run of the show. So here we go. Bio. Carl Jung. Here we go. Carl Jung, born 1875, graduated from this dimension in 1961. Carl Jung was an early 20th century psychotherapist and psychiatrist who created the field of analytical psychology. He is widely considered one of the most important figures in the history of psychology. Carl Gustav Jung was born in Switzerland in 1875 to Emily Price work and Paul Jung, a pastor. Because of his father's faith, Jung developed a keen interest in religious history, but he settled on the study of medicine at the University of Basel. After he completed his medical degree, Jung joined the staff at the Bergholisi Clinic in Zurich, Switzerland as an intern to Eugene Bleuler, where he explored the unconscious mind and its related complexes. He also traveled to Paris to study under Pierre Janet in 1902. In 1905, Jung was appointed to the faculty at the University of Zurich, where he worked until 1913. Jung married Emma Rauschenbach in 1903. The couple had five children and remained married until Emma's death in 1955, although Jung's extramarital affairs were extensive. Uh Uh-oh. Back in 1906, Jung sent a copy of his book, Studies in Word Association, to Sigmund Freud and Freud reciprocated by inviting Jung to visit Vienna. Their friendship lasted until 1913, at which time they parted ways due to a difference in academic opinion. (laughs) I'm sure there's a complex for that. Jung agreed with Freud's theory of the unconscious, but Jung also believed in the existence of a deeper collective unconscious and representative archetypes. Ooh. Freud openly criticized Jung's theories, and this fundamental difference caused their friendship and psychological views to diverge. Jung traveled throughout the world to teach and influence others with his psychoanalytical theories. He published many books relating to psychology and others that seemed outside the realm of science. Including flying saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies, which examined and dissected the psychological significance of UFO sightings. Interesting. I kind of, maybe I know that in the back of my mind. Young's work embodied his belief that each person has a life purpose that is based in a spiritual self. Through his Eastern, Western, and mythological studies, Jung developed a theory of transformation called individuation that he explored in Psychology and Alchemy, a book in which he detailed the relationship of alchemies in the psychoanalytical process. Wow, this guy is just cool. He's one (laughs) of us. Uh, Carl Jung is recognized as one of the most influential psychiatrists of all time. He founded analytical psychology and was among the first experts in his field to explore the religious nature behind human psychology. He argued that empirical evidence was not the only way to arrive at psychological or scientific truths and that the soul plays a key role in the psyche. Key contributions of Jung include the collective unconscious, Dream analysis and the interpretations of dreams. ooh, extroversion and introversion. Come on, how many people describe themselves as an extrovert or introvert? He was one of the fir- he was the first to identify these two personality traits. And uh, psychological complexes all came from Jung A- and he had an emphasis on spirituality. He argued that spirituality, And a sense of the connectedness of life could play a profound role in emotional health. I agree. He was the persona and the shadow guy. Synchronicity. I mean, come on. This guy's all over the place. Jung, I wish he could have been on the show. Well, he's on the show now. So there's his bio. Bryn, what did you think about that? Carl Jung. Holy cow. Did you know he put so much into the... Collective unconscious of human (laughs) beings. I mean, he put it all there. He, well, he interpreted those things, it seems, or channeled some sort of understanding, but still it came from his consciousness in a way. Very, very strange. I mean, I,
1: I think it came from his consciousness and also there's always those people who are able to see clearly and connect the dots and dissect it and put it out there for us in a way that had never been. Um, available before
0: and it's kind of funny that he was friends with Freud but then had a beef with Freud at the end yeah interesting
1: to be a bug on the wall there huh
0: well Freud notoriously did cocaine so maybe he was all cooked up and he was just like I'm not talking to him I don't know but we'll see anyways the world within Carl Jung in his own words it's a documentary it's from 1990. And it explains his standpoints mainly by using footage of him talking. So it's a, a compilation of rare material. A lot of it's from the 50s, the late 50s. And we'll talk about it as it goes. And I'll, I'll let you know what's going on as it happens. Bryn, are you ready to dive into Carl? You, <laughs> he's going to hang out with I us. I
1: am. I've got my pen got my tea. All right. Yeah. Ready to do it. Let's go.
0: Okay. So here we go, people. This is Carl Jung, The World Within. And then we're going to do another one, but I'll let you know. So here we go. The World Within. Carl Jung.
2: In early childhood, a character is already there. You see, the child is not born popular as one assumes. The child is born as a high complexity with existing determinants that never waver through the whole life and that give the child its char- his character already in the earliest childhood. A mother recognizes the in- an individuality of her child. And, uh, and so if you observe carefully, you see the tremendous difference even in, in very small children. And these peculiarities express themselves in every way. So first, the peculiarities express express themselves in, in all childish activities, in the way how it plays, in the things it is interested in. There are children who are tremendously interested in all moving things, and in movement chiefly, all the things they see that affect the body. And so they are interested in what the eyes do, what the ears do, how Uh, how far you can bore into the nose with your finger, you know. (laughs) Now you see these things, uh, these interests uh, express themselves in a typically childish way in in children, and later on they express themselves in other peculiarities, which are still the same, but it doesn't come from the fact that they once have done such and such a thing in In childhood. It is the character that is doing it. There is, there is a a definite inherited complexity. You see, we are born into a, into a pattern. We are a pattern. We are a structure that is pre-established through the genes. It is a, a biological order of our mental functioning. Uh, as, for instance, our biological, or physiological function uh, follows a pattern. Or the behavior of any bird or insect follows a pattern, and that is uh, with the same with us. The, 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 man has a certain pattern that is, makes him specifically human, and no, no man is born without it. We are only deeply unconscious of these facts because we live all by our senses and outside of ourselves. If if a man could look into it himself, he would discover it. And when a man discovers it, in our days he thinks he's crazy. And he may be crazy. But even those people wouldn't be capable of knowing what is going on in their own cultures. For instance, they are not conscious of the fact That while I live a conscious life, all the time a myth is played in the unconscious. A myth that extends over centuries. Namely, uh, uh, archetypal ideas, a stream of archetypal ideas that goes on through one individual, through the centuries. You see, it, it is like a continuous stream. And that comes then to the daylight in the great movements, say in, in political movements or in uh, spiritual movements. Um, for instance, in the time before reformation, uh, people dreamt of the great change. And that's the reason why uh, such great transformations could be predicted. Uh, if uh, somebody has been clever enough, to see what there is going on in people's mind, in the unconscious mind, uh, uh, w- would be able to predict it. For instance, I have predicted the Nazi rising in Germany uh, through the observation of my German patients. They had dreams in which the whole thing was anticipated. Uh, and, and with considerable detail in, 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 the years before Hitler, before Hitler came in the beginning of the, well, I could uh, could say the year, in the year 1919. I was sure that something was threatening in Germany, something mm-hmm. very big and very catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And I only knew it through the through the observation of the of of the, of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. When you observe the world, you see people, you see houses, you see the sky, uh, you see tangible objects. But when you observe yourself within, you see moving images. A world of images, uh, generally known as fantasies. Uh, Yet, these uh, fantasies are facts. You see, it is a fact that a man has such and such a fantasy. And it is such a tangible fact, for instance, that when a man has a certain fantasy, uh, another man may lose his life. Or uh, a bridge is built. These houses were all fantasies. Everything you do here, all That's of our right. others, everything was fantasy to begin with. And fantasy has a proper reality. It is, that is not to be forgotten. Fantasy is not nothing. It is, of course, not a tangible object, but it is a fact nevertheless. It is a, a say, a form of energy, o, o, despite the fact we can't measure it. It, it is a manifestation of something. And that is a reality, that is just uh, uh, a reality as, for instance, the Peace Treaty of Versailles or something like that. Mm-hmm. It is no more, you can't show it, but it it it, it, it has been a fact. And, and so, uh, the, the psychical events are facts, are realities. And when you observe the stream of images within, you observe an aspect of the world. Of the world within. And so, you see, the man who is going by the external world, by the influences of the external world, say, society or perceptions, uh, sense perceptions, thinks that he he is more valid, you know, because this is valid, this is real. And the man who goes by the subjective factor is not valid because subjective factor is nothing. No, that man is just as well-based, because he is based bases himself upon uh, the world from within. And so he is quite right, even if he says, oh, there's nothing but my fantasy, you know. And of course, that is the introvert. And as the introvert is always afraid of, of the external world, he will tell you, when you ask him, you, you, he will be apologetic about it. You say, of course, yes, I know, only my fantasies. And, uh, and he has always resentment. And as the world in general, particularly America, is extroverted like hell, uh, <laughs> the, the, the introvert has no place. Uh, he, uh, because he doesn't know that he beholds the world from within. And that gives him dignity. And that gives him certainty. Because it is, nowadays particularly, the the world hangs on a thin thread, and that is the psyche of man. Assume that uh, certain fellows in Moscow lose their nerve or their uh, common sense uh, for a bit, and uh, the whole world is in fire and, and flames. Mm-hmm. It is, nowadays we are not threatened by elementary catastrophes. There is no such thing as an H-bomb. That is all man's doing. We are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong with the psyche? You see? Nice. And, <clears throat> So you see, it is demonstrated to us in our days what what the power, the psyche is, of man. How important it is to know something about it, but we know nothing about it. Man is born with a certain functioning, a certain way of functioning, a certain pattern of behavior. And uh, that is expressed in the form of archetypal images or archetypal forms. For instance, the way in which a man should behave is given by an archetype. Yeah. And therefore, you see, the primitives tell such stories. A uh, great deal of education goes through storytelling. You see, if you are unconscious in, uh, about certain things that ought to be conscious, then you are dissociated. Right. And then you are uh, a man whose uh, uh, left hand never knows what the right is doing and counteracts or interferes with the right hand. Now, such a man is hampered all over the place. American life is in a subtle way so one-sided and so uprooted that you must have something to compensate the earth. You have to, to, to pacify your unconscious all along the line because it is in absolute uproar. So, at the slightest provocation, uh, you have a, a big moral rebellion in America. Look at the, at the, the rebellion of, of modern youth in, in, in America, yeah. the sexual rebellion and all that, because yeah. the, 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 the real natural man uh, is just in open rebellion against the utterly inhuman uh, form of life. They are absolutely worst, you know, um, from from nature in a way and, and that accounts for these that, that drug abuse um, I noticed uh, with my uh, patients particularly with uh, people that are in uh, in public life that they have a certain way of uh, presenting themselves uh, for instance take the doctor he uh, has a, a certain way for instance he has good bedside, Manners, and, and uh, uh, he behaves as one as expects a doctor behaves. He may even identify himself with it and uh, and believe that he is what he appears to be. And so when he is a professor, he is also supposed to behave in a certain way, so that it is plausible that he is a professor, you know. Uh, so the persona is a certain, certain complicated system of behavior which is partially dictated by society and partially dictated by the expectations or the wishes one uh, nurses oneself. Uh, now, this is not the real personality. In spite of the fact that people will assure you that it that is all quite real and uh, quite honest, yet it is not. Now, uh, such a uh, performance, or uh, say, yeah, the, the performance of the uh, of the persona uh, is quite all right as long as you know that you are not identical with the way in which you appear. But. Uh, if you are unconscious of this fact, then you get into uh, sometimes very disagreeable conflicts. Namely, people will can't help noticing that at home, for instance, you are quite different from what you appear to be in public. And people who don't know it uh, stumble over it in the end. Uh, they deny that they are like that. But they are like that. They yeah. are it. And then you don't know, now, which is the real man? Is he the man as he is at home or in intimate relations? Or is he uh, uh, the man that appears in public? It is a question of check and hide. Often. Yeah. it is such. A, uh, uh, occasionally there is such a difference that you would always be uh, able to speak of uh, the uh, double personality. And the more that is pronounced, the more people uh, people are neurotic. They get neurotic because they have two different ways. They contradict themselves all the time, and in as much as they are unconscious of themselves, they don't know it. They think they are all one. Everybody sees that they are two, and some know him only from one side. So others know him only from the other side. And then there are situations that clash because. The way you are creates certain situations in, with people in your relations, and the, these two situations don't chime in. They, they are just uh, dissonances. When they take a singer. Yes. Who is absolutely, uh, uh, controlling his voice. Suddenly he can't sing. Or, uh, any other, uh, take, uh, A man who writes uh, fluently, uh, suddenly he makes a ridiculous mistake. There, his habit doesn't function. It may be, you know, that what the unconscious has to say is so disagreeable that one prefers not to listen. And in in most cases, uh, uh, people would be probably less neurotic if they could admit the the things, you know, these things are are always a bit difficult, or disagreeable, or, yes. or, physical, or uh, inconvenient, or some yes. other sort. So there is always a certain amount of repression. When in treatment, for instance, in the treatment of neurosis, you have to do with that personal unconscious for quite a while. And then only uh, dreams come that show that the collective unconscious is touched upon. Yes. Now, as long as uh, th- uh, there uh, is material uh, p- for personal nature, you have to deal with a personal approach. But when you get to, uh, 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 say to a question, um, to a problem, which is no more merely personal, but also collective, you get collective treatment. You see, there is no system about it in therapy. In therapy, you you treat the patient as he is in the present moment. Uh, irrespective of causes and and, and such things. That is all more or less theoretical. Um, There are are cases who know just as much about their own neurosis as I know about it, in a way. Uh, In in such cases, I can start right away with uh, posing the problem. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, there is a case, a professor of philosophy, And he imagines uh, that he has uh, cancer. He he shows me uh, uh, several dozen uh, x-ray plates uh, that prove that there is no cancer. And he says, of course I have no cancer, but nevertheless, I'm afraid I could have one, you see. I have consulted so many surgeons and they all assure me there is none. And I know there is none, but I might have one, you see. And that's enough. Now, uh, you see, such a case can stop from one moment to the other. He simply uh, stops thinking such a foolish thing, I you see. see. But that is exactly what he can do. You know it is nonsense, and why should you think it? Or what for should you think it? Well, And what is that power that makes you think such a thing? It's like a, like a, a possession, you know. Exactly. It's yes. like a demon yes. in him yes. that makes him think like that, in spite of the fact that he doesn't want it. You see, Then we have the problem. That is the problem for an intellectual man. And then I say, now, you see, you don't know. You have no answer. Okay. I have no answer. Now what are we going to do? I say, now we must see what you dream. Because the dream is a manifestation of the unconscious side. Right. Now you never have heard of the unconscious side. So I must explain to him, that he has an unconscious, and that the dream is a manifestation of it, and if we we succeed in analyzing the dream, we 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 might get an idea about that power that makes him think like that, you see? Uh, So, uh, in in such a case, uh, one can begin right away with the analysis of dreams, and in all cases uh, that are a bit serious, mind you, this is not a simple case, this is a very serious and, and difficult case, uh, in spite of the simplicity of the uh, phenomenology of the symptomatology, in, in all cases, after uh, 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 the preliminaries, as it were, uh, history of the family, the uh, the whole medical anamnesis, etc., we come to that question: What is it in your unconscious that makes you wrong, Uh, that hinders you to think normally. And then we are uh, there where we can begin with the observation of the unconscious. And then, day by day, one goes on by the data the unconscious produces. You see, we discuss the dream and that gives a new surface to the whole problem. And he, he will have another dream, and the next dream gives again an answer, because the unconscious is in a compensatory relation to consciousness, and uh, and after a while we get the full picture. And if he has the full picture and uh, has the, the necessary moral stamina, uh, well, then he he can be cured. But in the end, it is a moral question, whether a man applies what he had learned or not. just one typical archetypal form. It is the, what they call in Alchemy the Quadratura, in the square in the circle, or the circle in the square. And it is an age-old symbol. Uh, that goes right back in the, the prehistory of man and is all over the earth. And uh, it uh, either expresses the, the deity or the self. And uh, and the, the, these two terms are typologically very uh, much related. But which doesn't mean that I believe that God is a self or that that's a self is God. Uh, I make that statement that there is a psychological relation. And that can be... uh, uh, have plenty of evidence for it. And uh, it is a a very important archetype. It is the archetype of an inner border. Uh, And uh, uh, it is always used in that sense, either to make uh, the arrangement of the many, many aspects of the universe, uh, a world scheme, or a uh, uh, scheme of uh, uh, our psyche, and uh, it expresses the fact that there is a center at the periphery, and uh, and it tries to embrace the whole. It's a, a, a symbol of wholeness. So, is see, uh, in a moment where, uh, say, uh, during the uh, treatment. Uh, when there is great disorder and chaos in a man's mind. Uh, then this symbol kind of can appear, as an, in the form of a mantra, in a dream, or when he makes imaginary fantastical drawings, or yes. something of the sort. there it spontaneously appears, uh, as a compensatory archetype, bringing order, showing the possibility of order, centralness. And it means a centre which is not coincident with, with the ego, but with the wholeness in this wholeness, it is our wholeness, which I call the South. The yes. South is the term for wholeness. And and I not whole in my ego. I my ego is is a fragment yes, of my personality. It's yes. So is he? Uh, that the center of a mandala is not the ego, it, it is the whole personality. The center of the whole personality. Mm. And uh, uh, there is a very great holy in the East, for instance. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, equally. Uh, and, and then it, it has been lost, it has been thought of as a mere sort of allegorical. Uh, Decorative uh, motive, but uh, 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 as a matter of fact it is a highly important, and highly autonomous uh, uh, symbol that appears in dreams and and so on, or in folklore. I had a a case that was an intelligent uh, 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 young woman. She was a, a student of philosophy, very good mind. Where one could expect easily that she would see uh, that I am not the the, uh, parental authority. But she was utterly unable to, uh, to get out of this delusion. Uh, And in such, in such a case, one, uh, one always has recourse to the dream. It is just as if one would ask the unconscious, now what do you say to such a condition? You see, she says, her cultures, of course, I know you are not my father, but I just feel like that. It is like that. It, 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 I depend upon you. And, uh, and I say, now we see what the unconscious says. Now the unconscious produced dreams in, in which I really assumed a very curious role. You know, uh, she was the little infant, she was sitting on my knees, I held her in my arms. I was a very tender father to the little girl, you know. And the last dream of that series was, I cannot tell you all the dreams, was that I, uh, uh, was out in nature, I stood in a field of wheat, you know, a field of wheat that was ripe for harvest. And I was a giant. And I held her in my arm like a baby. And the wind was... Blowing over that field of wheat. Now you know when the wind is blowing over wheat field, these waves in the wheat field. Yes, yes. And with these waves, I swayed like that, uh, putting her as if it were to sleep. You know, and she feel, she felt uh, as being in the arms of a, of a god, of of of, of the godhead. And I uh, thought, so now now the the harvest is ripe. And I must tell her. And I told her, you see, what you want and what you project into me, because you are not conscious of it, is you, you have the idea of a deity. You don't possess. Therefore, you see it in me. That clicked. Because, you know, she had a, a, a rather intense uh, religious education. Of course, it all vanished later on. And something disappeared from her world. Her world became merely personal. And, and the, uh, that uh, religious conception of the world was non-existent, apparently. And so she suddenly became aware of an entirely heathenish bi- uh, image. Um, that comes fresh from the archetype. She had not the idea of a Christian God uh, or of an Old Testament, Yahweh. Uh, It was a heathenish God, you see, a a God of nature, of vegetation. He was the wheat himself, the spirit of the wheat, uh, the spirit of the wind. And she was in the arms of that human. Now, that is the living experience of an archetype. Now that made a tremendous impression upon that girl and instantly it clicked. She saw what she really was missing, that missing value that, that was was in the form of a projection in myself and made myself indispensable to her. Yes. Now that is a luminous experience, you see. And, and that is the thing that uh, people are looking for. The, an archetypal experience that gives them uh, uh, an incorruptible value. You see they depend upon other conditions, they depend upon desi- their desires, their ambitions, right. uh, depend upon other people because they have no value in themselves, they have nothing in themselves. they are only rational. they are not in the possession of a treasure. That would make them independent. But when that girl can hold that uh, experience, then she doesn't depend anymore. She cannot depend anymore because that value is in herself. And, and that is a sort of liberation. And that is, of course, uh, makes her complete, you know, uh, in as much as she can realize such a numerous experience, she is able to continue her path, her way, her individuation. The acorn can become an oak and not a donkey. uh, 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 Nature will take uh, uh, her course. Uh, She will become that which she is from the beginning. You know, it is a a procedure that has many uh, stages uh, of levels. If you treat an ordinary case of uh, urosis, it it may only go as far as healing the symptoms or giving the patient such an attitude that he can deal with his urosis. Sometimes it takes you a week, sometimes a few days, sometimes it is just one consultation in which I, uh, I clean up a, a case. It's, it's of course always the, the question to know where or what. Uh, it needs a good deal of experience, but other cases take very long and you couldn't send them away because they wouldn't. They, they want to know more. They... Make uh, 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 well, they 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 make uh, the whole process of development. They uh, that goes from stage to stage, a widening out of the mental horizon. You you cannot imagine how one-sided people are in our days. And so it 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 needs no end of work to get people rounded out or mentally more developed, more conscious. And they are so keen on it that for nothing in the world they would quit. And they are not shy of spending money on it. As each plant, each tree grows from a seed and becomes in the end, say, an oak tree, so man becomes what is meant to be. At least he ought to get there but most get stuck they could get much further if they had heard proper things or if they had spent the necessary time on themselves but this is not popular you know to spend time on oneself because our point of view is entirely extroverted. mythology is a pronouncing of series of images that formulate the life of archetypes. And so the statements of every uh, religion, of many uh, uh, poets and so on, are uh, uh, statements about the inner uh, um, mythological process, which is a necessity because man is not complete if he is not conscious of uh, that aspect of things. So, you see, a man is not complete when he lives in a world of the statistical truth. He must live in a world of his biological truth. That is his biological truth. That is not... Uh, uh, Merely statistics, yet uh, our natural science uh, makes everything to an average, it reduces everything to an average, and of course, <coughs> all the individual qualities are wiped out. That of course is, is most uh, unbecoming, It is it is unhygienic, it, it, it deprives people of their specific values where they are individuals. Uh, because, uh, it takes it deprives them of the most important experiences of their life, where they experience their own value, the, <coughs> maybe the creative background of their personality, and uh, we think we are able to be born today and to live in no-miss, without history. That's, that's, that is a, a disease that's absolutely abnormal. Because man is not born every day. He is once born in a, in a specific historical setting with the specific historical qualities. And therefore, he is only complete when he has a relation to, to these things. It's just as if you were born without eyes and ears, uh, when, you are born, when you are growing up with no connection with the past. From the natural, with the sample of natural science, you need no connection with the past. You yeah. can wipe it out. And that is, that is a, a, a mutilation of, of, of the human being. The self is merely a term that designates the whole personality. The whole personality of man is indescribable. The, his consciousness can be described. His unconscious cannot be described. Because the unconscious, as I must repeat myself, is always unconscious. And it is really unconscious. It <laughs> really does not know it, And so we don't know our uh, our unconscious personality. We have hints. We have uh certain ideas but uh, we don't know it really nobody can say where man ends that is the the beauty of it you know it's it's very interesting Uh, the unconscious of man can reach god knows where there we are going to make discoveries
0: okay well that tapered off for a second as i switch over to this other video from 1959 it's the face-to-face interview what you heard before was an excerpt of very wide-ranging uh topics his thoughts on various things there's not much footage of dr jung out there so You know, we got to just kind of take what we can get and learn what we can get from what's there. There was still an immense amount of information. So before we dive into what we thought about it, let's just go to the next thing. This is face-to-face with Carl Jung. It's an interview with him in 1959.
3: Carl Gustav Jung. Born in 1875 with Freud, one of the founding fathers of modern psychology. Still working, at 84, he is the most honoured living psychiatrist, and history will record him as one of the greatest physicians of all time. Professor Jung, how many years have you lived in this lovely house by the lake at Zurich? It's just about 50 years. Um, Do you live here now just with your secretaries and your English housekeeper? Yes. No children or grandchildren with you? Oh, well, no, they don't live here. But I have plenty of them in the surroundings. Do they come to see you often? Oh, oh yes. How many grandchildren have oh, you? Oh, 19. And great-grandchildren? Oh, uh, I think eight.
4: And uh, I suppose one is on the way. And do, they, uh, do you enjoy having them? Well, of course it's nice to, to feel such a... Leaving crowd out of oneself. Are they afraid of you, do you think? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think so. If you would know my grandchildren, they wouldn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> what? But they steal my things. Uh, even
3: my hat that belongs to me, that I stole the other day. <laughs> now, can I take you back to your own childhood? Do you remember the occasion when you first felt Consciousness of your own individual self? That was in my eleventh year. There
4: I suddenly, on my way to school, I stepped out of a mist. It was just as if I had been in a mist, walking in a mist, and I stepped out of it and I knew I am. I am what I am. And then I thought, but what ha- have I been before? And then I found that I was that I had been in a mist, not knowing uh, to differentiate myself from things. I was just one thing about
3: among among many things. Now was that associated with any particular episode in your life, or was it just a normal function of adolescence?
4: Well uh, that's difficult to say uh, As far as I can remember, nothing had happened before that would explain
3: this sudden coming to consciousness. You hadn't, for instance, been quarrelling with your parents or anything? No. No. Uh, What memories have you of of your parents? Were they strict and old-fashioned in the way they brought you up? Oh, well, you know, they belonged uh, to the later parts of the Middle Ages. And
4: uh, my father was person in the country and uh, and uh, you can imagine they, uh, what people were then you know in the 70s of the past century they had the convictions in which uh, people have lived since uh,
3: 1800 years how did he try to impress these convictions on you? Did he punish you, for instance? Oh, no, not no. at all. No, he was very liberal. I, and he was most tolerant, most understanding. Uh, which did you get on with more, more intimately, your father or your mother? That's difficult to
4: say. In, of course, one is always more intimate with the mother. Uh, but when it comes to the personal feeling, I had a better relation to my father, who was predictable, then with my mother, who was,
3: uh, to me, uh, a very problemat- problematical something. So, at any rate, fear was not an element in your relation with your father? Uh, not at all. Did you accept him as being infallible in his judgments? Oh no, I knew he was very fallible. How, uh, how old were you when you knew that?
4: Well, uh, let me see. Uh, perhaps 11 or 12 years old it was hanging together with the fact that I was that I knew I
3: was and from then on I saw that my father was different yes so you the moment of self-revelation was closely connected with realizing the fallibility of your parents uh, yes, one could say so. Now,
4: what about? But your... I realized that I had fear of my mother, but not during the day. There she was quite uh, f- known to me, unpredictable.
3: But in the night, I had fear of my mother. And can you remember why? Can you remember what that? I character... have not the slightest idea why. No. What about your school days? Now, were you happy at school as a schoolboy? In no in the beginning I was very happy to have
4: companions you know because before I had been very lonely we lived in the country and um, uh, I had no no brother and no sister my sister was born very much later when it was nine years old and so I was used to be alone but I missed it I missed company and in school it was wonderful to have company but soon, um, you know, in a country school, naturally, I, I, I was uh, far ahead.
3: And, and then I began to be bored. What sort of religious upbringing did your father give oh, you? Oh, we were Swiss Reformed. And did he make you attend church regularly? Oh, well,
4: that was quite natural. Yes. Everybody went to, 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 to church yes. on Sunday. And did you believe in God? Oh, yes. Do you now believe in God? Uh, now? difficult to answer
3: I know I need I don't need to believe I know well now turning to the next uh, staging point in your life what made you decide to become a doctor
4: that was in the first place uh, a merely opportunistic choice I really originally I wanted to be an archaeologist uh, Assyriology, Egyptology, or something of the sort. I hadn't the money. The the study was too expensive. So, I uh, my second love then belonged to nature, particularly uh, zoology. And I when I began my studies, I inscribed in the uh, so-called philosophical faculty, to That means uh, natural sciences. But then I soon. Uh, uh, saw uh, that the post my of the car the career that uh, was before me uh, uh, would uh, make a schoolmaster of me. I would I didn't. I never thought I had any chance uh, to 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 get any further because we had no money at all. And then I uh, uh, I saw that that, did, that didn't suit my. Uh, expectations, you know, I I, I didn't want to become a a Uh, schoolmaster, teaching was not just what I was looking for and so I remember that my grandfather has been a a doctor and uh, and I knew that when I was studying medicine I had a chance to study natural science and uh, to become a doctor and the doctor can develop, you see, he can have a practice, he can do, uh, he can choose his scientific interests more or less. Uh, uh, at all events, I would have more chance than being a schoolmaster. Also
3: the idea of doing something useful with human beings appealed to me. And did you, when you decided to become a doctor, have difficulty in getting the training at school and in passing the exams? Uh, I... Uh, particularly had a difficulty with certain
4: teachers uh, that didn't believe that I could write a, a decent thesis. I remember one case where the teacher had the custom to, the habit to uh, discuss the papers written by the, the, the pupils. Uh, and he took the best first. And he went through the whole. Uh, number of uh, pupils and I I didn't appear and I I was uh, uh, badly troubled over it and I thought well it is impossible that my thesis can be that bad and uh, when he had finished he said there is still one paper left over and that is the one by Jung that would be by far the best paper if it hadn't been copied he has, he has just copied it somewhere, stolen. You are a thief, Jung. And if I knew where you had, uh, have stolen it, you, uh, you, I would fling you out of school. And I, I got mad, and I uh, said, this is uh, the one thesis where I have worked the most, because the, the theme was interesting, in contradistinction, you know, to other themes which are sure, not at all interesting to me. And, uh, and then he said, you are a liar, and if you can prove that you have stolen that thing somewhere, then you get out of school. Now, that was a very serious thing to me, because what else then, you see? And uh, I hated that fellow, and that was the, the only man I could have killed, you know, if I had met him once at a dark corner, I would have shown him something of what I could do. Did you often have violent thoughts
1: about you? Oh, Carl Jung gets dark.
4: <laughs> no, not exactly. Only when I got mad. Uh, well, then I beat him up.
3: And did you often get mad?
4: Not so often, but uh, then for good. Uh,
3: you were you
4: were very strong and big, I imagine. Yes, I was pretty strong. And, you know, uh, reared in the country with those peasant boys. It was a rough kind of life. And, and I, I would, would have been capable of, 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 of violence, I know. I was a bit afraid of it. So I, I rather tried to avoid the critical situations because I didn't trust myself. Once I was attacked by uh, about uh, seven boys. And I got mad. And I took one and just swang him around with his legs, you know, and, and, and beat down four of them. And then they, they were satisfied. And were there any uh, consequences from that after? Oh, I should say yes. Uh, from then on, I was always, always suspected that I was at the bottom of every trouble. I was
3: not, but uh, they were afraid, and I was never attacked again. Well, now, when the time came that you qualified as a doctor, what made you decide to specialize in being an alienist?
4: Yeah, that is rather an interesting point. When I, I had finished my studies practically and when I um, uh, uh, didn't know what I really wanted to do, I had a big chance uh, for, uh, to follow one of my professors. He was called to a new position in Munich and he wanted me as his assistant. And But then, in that moment, I uh, studied for my final examination. Um, I came across the textbook, a textbook of uh, uh, psychiatry. Up to then, I thought nothing about it because our professor then wasn't particularly interesting and I, read, I only read the introduction to that book where certain things were said uh, about psychosis uh, as a maladjustment of the personality that hit the nail on the head in that moment I saw I must become an alienist my heart was thumping wildly in that moment uh, and uh, when I told my professor I, I wouldn't follow him, I would study uh, psychiatry. Uh, he couldn't understand it. No, my uh, my friends, uh, because in those days psychiatry was was nothing, nothing at all. But I saw one the one great chance to unite certain uh, 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 contrasting things in myself, namely. Beside medicine, beside natural science, I always had studied uh, history of philosophy and such subjects. Uh, It was just as if suddenly two streams were
3: uh, joining. And how long was it after you took that decision that you first came in contact with Freud? Oh, you know, that was at the end of my studies
4: and, and then it took quite a while until I met Freud. You see, I finished my studies in 1900 and I met Freud uh, only very much later by uh, I read uh, well I in 1900 I already read uh, his treatment inter- interpretation and the boy of Freud studies uh, about uh, hysteria but that was merely literary you know and then in 1907 I became acquainted with him personally
3: Will you tell me how that happened? Did you go to Vienna? Oh, well, to... I had
4: written a book about the psychology of uh, de- dementia of called Schizophrenia then. Uh, and uh, I sent him that book and thus became acquainted. I went, I went to Vienna for a fortnight then and then we had in very uh, uh, long and penetrating
3: conversations. And uh, that settled it. And this long and penetrating conversation was followed by a personal friendship? Oh, yes. It soon
4: developed into a personal friendship.
3: And what sort of man was Freud? Well, he
4: was a complicated nature, you know. He, I liked him very much. And, but I soon discovered that when he had thought something, then it was settled. While I was doubting all along the line. And uh, it was impossible to discuss something really form. You know, he had no uh, philosophical education, particularly, you uh, see, I was studying Kant, and uh, I was steeped in it, and, uh, and that was far from Freud.
3: So, uh, from the very beginning, There was a discrepancy. Did you in fact grow apart later, partly because of a difference in temperamental approach to experiment and proof and so on? Well, of course, there is always a
4: temperamental difference. Uh, And uh, his approach was uh, naturally different from mine, because his personality was different from mine. That led me into my later investigation of psychological types. There are definite attitudes. Uh, Some people are doing it in this way and other people are doing it in the other typical way. And
3: there were such differences between myself and Freud, too. Do you consider that Freud's standard of proof and experimentation was less high than your own? Well, uh, you see, that is an evaluation uh,
4: I am not competent of, Uh, I am not my own history or my uh, historiographer, I, (laughs) uh, in, with reference to certain results, uh, I think uh, my method has uh, its merits.
3: Tell me, did Freud himself ever analyze you? Uh,
4: yeah, oh, yes, I had, uh, submitted quite a lot of my dreams to him, and yeah. so did he. And he to you,
3: yes? Oh, yes, yes. yes. Um, do you remember now, at this distance of time, what were the significant features of Freud's dreams that you noted at the time? Well, that is
4: rather indiscreet to ask. You know, I have, there is such a thing as a professional secret. He's been dead these uh, many years. Uh, I, Yeah, yes, but uh, uh, these... Uh, that's a protected
3: under HIPAA. Life. Uh, I prefer not to talk about it. Well, may I ask you something else then, which perhaps is also indiscreet. Is it true that you have a very large number of letters which you exchanged with Freud, which are still unpublished? Yes. When are they going to be published? Well, uh, not during my lifetime. You would have no objection to them being published after your life? Oh, no, not at all. Because they are probably of great historical importance. I don't think so. So, (laughs) Why have you not published them so far?
4: Because they were not important to me enough. I see no particular importance
3: in them. They are concerned with personal matters? Well, partially. Uh,
4: but I wouldn't care to, to, to publish them.
3: Well, now, can we move on to the time when you did eventually uh, part company with Freud? Uh, it was partly, I think, with the publication of your book, The Psychology of the Unconscious, is that correct? That, is, that is, was the real course.
4: Well, now, before you... Oh, I mean the, the, the final course, because it had a long preparation. You know, from the beginning, I had a Reservatio Mentalis. I couldn't uh, agree with uh, quite a number of his uh, ideas. Which ones in particular? Well, uh, chiefly his purely personal approach and his disregard of uh, the historical conditions of man. You see, we depend largely upon our history. Uh, We are shaped through education, through the influence of the parents, which are by no means always personal. They were prejudiced or they were influenced by historical ideas or what I call dominance. And, uh, and that is uh, a most decisive factor in psychology. And we are not of today or
3: of yesterday. We are of an immense age. Was it not partly your observation, your clinical observation, of psychotic cases which led you to differ from Freud on this? It was partially my experience with,
4: with uh, schizophrenic patients that uh, led me uh, to the idea of certain general historical conditions.
3: Is there any one case that you can now look back on and feel that perhaps it was the turning point of your thought? Oh yes. Uh, uh, I made quite
4: a number of experiences of that sort. And I went uh, even to Washington to uh, study uh, Negroes at the psychiatric clinic there in order to find out whether they have the same type of dreams as we have. Uh, And uh, these experiences and others led me then to the hypothesis that there is an impersonal stratum in our psyche. And uh, uh, I can tell you an example. We had a uh, a patient uh, in the ward. He was quiet but uh, completely dissociated, uh, schizophrenic. And he was uh, in the clinic already for over 20 years. He had come into the clinic, as a matter of fact, being a young man, uh, a little clerk, and, uh, and did no particular education. And once, I came into the warm, and, and he was obviously excited, and called to me, took me by the label of my coat, and led me to the window, uh, and said, "Doctor, now, now you must see. Uh, now look at it. Look up at the sun, uh, and see uh, how it moves. You see, you must move your head too like this, and then you will see the uh, the follows of the sun." and uh, you know that's the origin of the wind and you see how the sun moves as you move your head from one side to the other now of course i didn't understand it at all i thought there you are he's just crazy Uh, and but that case remained in my mind and four years later uh, i uh, came across uh, a paper written by the German um, historian Dietrich um, who had uh, dealt with with the so-called Mitras liturgy, a part of the great uh, Parisian sorcerer Papyrus. And there he uh, produced the uh, uh, part of the so-called Mithras liturgy, namely uh, it is say there after the second prayer thou will see the, how the disk of the sun unfolds and you will see hanging down from it the tube the origin of the wind and when you move thy face and face to the regions of the east, it will move there. And if you move your face to the region of the west, it will follow you. And instantly I I knew, knew, now this is it. This
3: is the vision of my patient. But how could you be sure that your patient wasn't unconsciously recalling something that somebody had told him? Oh, no, quite out of question, because
4: that thing was not known. It was in a... in a a magic papyrus in Paris uh, and it it wasn't even published. It was only published four years later after I had observed it with my patient.
3: And this you felt proved that there was an unconscious which was something more than personal. Oh well that was not a proof to me but it was a hint and I took the hint. Now, tell me, how did you first decide to start your work on the psychological types? Was that also as a result of some particular clinical experience? Uh, Less so. It was a
4: very personal reason. Namely, to do justice to the psychology of Freud, also to that of Adler, and to find my own bearings. Uh, That helped me to understand why Freud developed such a theory. Oh, I ought to have developed his
3: theory, his power principle. Have you concluded what psychological type you are yourself? Naturally, I have devoted
4: a great deal of attention to that <laughs> painful question, you know. And reached a conclusion? Well, you see, the, the type is nothing static. It, it changes with, in the course of life. Uh, but I most certainly... Uh, was characterized by thinking. I always thought from early childhood on. And uh, I had a great deal of intuition too. And I had a definite difficulty with feeling. Uh, and my relation to reality was not particularly brilliant. I was often at variance with the reality of things. Now that gives you all the necessary data for, 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 for the, the, the diagnosis.
3: During the 1930s, when you were working a lot with German patients, you did, I believe, forecast that uh, a second world war was very likely. Well now, looking at the world today, do you feel that a third world war is likely? I have no definite
4: indications in that respect. but. There are so many indications that one doesn't know what one sees. Is it trees or is it the wood? It's very difficult to say uh, because the the dreams of uh, people's dreams contain apprehensions, you know, but it is very difficult to say uh, whether They point to a war because that idea is uppermost in people's mind. Formerly, you know, it has been much simpler. People didn't think of a war. And therefore, it was rather clear what the dreams meant. Nowadays, no more so. We are so full of apprehensions, fears, that one doesn't know exactly to what it points. The one thing is sure, a great change of our psychological attitude is imminent. That is certain. Uh, why? Because we need more. We need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man far too little his psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all
3: coming evil well does man do you think need to have the concept of sin and evil to live with is this part of our nature
4: well obviously
3: and of a Redeemer that is a, an inevitable consequence this is not a, a, a concept which will disappear as we become more rational it's something which well I don't believe that man ever will uh, deviate uh,
4: from the original pattern of his being there will always be such ideas. For instance uh, if you do not directly believe in a personal redeemer as it was the case with Hitler or uh, the hero worship in Russia. Uh, then it is an idea. It is a, a, a symbolic idea.
3: Um, you you have written one time and another some sentences which have surprised me a little about death. Now, in particular, I, I remember you said that death is psychologically just as important as birth. And like it, it's an integral part of life, but surely it can't be like birth if it's
4: an end, can it? Yes, if it's an end. And there we are not quite certain uh, about this end. Because, you know, there are these uh, peculiar faculties of the psyche, that it isn't entirely confined to, to space and time. You can have dreams or visions of the future. You can see round corners and such things. Only ignorance deny these uh, these facts. It's quite evident that they do exist and have existed always. Now these facts show that the psyche, in part at least, is not dependent upon these confinements. And then what? When the psyche is not under that obligation to live in time and space alone, and obviously it doesn't, then, in, uh, to that extent, the psyche is not submitted to those laws. And uh, that means a, a practical uh, um, in, uh, continuation of life, of a sort of psychical existence,
3: uh, beyond
4: time and space.
3: Do you yourself, Believe that death is probably the end or do you do you believe? That well I I can't say
4: you see the word belief is a diff- difficult thing for me I don't believe I must have a reason uh, to, for for a certain hypothesis either I know a thing and when I know it I don't be- need to believe it if I I don't allow myself for instance to be believe a thing just for the sake of believing it uh, I, I can't believe it, but when there are sufficient reasons to for a certain hypothesis, I shall accept these reasons naturally, and should say we have to reckon with the possibility of so and so. You know.
3: Well, now you've told us that we should regard death as being a goal, yes. and that to shrink away from it is to evade life and make yes. life purposes. Yes. What advice would you give to people in their later life to enable them to do this when most of them must in fact believe that death is the end of everything? Mm
4: -hmm. Well, you see, I have treated many old people. And it's quite interesting to to watch what the unconscious is doing with the fact that it is apparently threatened with a complete end. Uh, It disregards it. it. Life behaves as if it were going on. And uh, so I think it is better for old people to live on, to, to look forward to the next day, uh, as if uh, he had to spend centuries. And then he lives properly. But when he is afraid, when he doesn't look forward, he looks back, he petrifies, he, he, he gets uh, stiff and And uh, he dies before his time, but when he is living on, looking forward to the great adventure that is ahead, then he lives. And that is about what the unconscious is intending to do. Of course, it's quite obvious that we are all going to to die, and this is uh, the the, the sad finale of everything. Um, But uh, nevertheless, there is something in us that doesn't believe it, apparently but this is merely a fact, a psychological fact, doesn't mean to me that it proves something. It is simply so. For instance, I may not know why we need salt, but we prefer to eat salt too, because you feel better. And so when you think in a certain way, you may feel considerably better. And I think, if you think along the lines of nature, then you think properly.
3: And this leads me to the last question that I want to ask you. As the world becomes more technically efficient, it seems increasingly necessary for people to behave communally and collectively. Now, do you think it possible that the highest development of man may be to submerge his own individuality in a kind of collective consciousness?
4: That's hardly possible. I think there will be a, a, a reaction, a reaction will set in against uh, this uh, communal uh, uh, dissociation. You know man doesn't stand forever his nullification. Once there will be uh, a reaction and uh, I see I see it setting in. You know when I think of my patients They all seek their own existence and to assure their existence against that complete atomization into nothingness or into meaninglessness. Man cannot stand a meaningless life.
0: Okay, we're back. That was probably one of the final interviews with Carl Jung. And I got to give a shout out to the interviewer It wasn't me. It was John Freeman is his name. And that was in 1959. Incredible interview and both the clip audio section of the show. And then the interview with him directly were both valuable. They each had different forms of valuable information. Now, you know, Carl Jung kind of personally after this point, like you kind of feel his vibe. He, Beat up four guys, by grabbing <laughs> one of them by the leg and using Carl Jung the-
1: gets dark. He's like, wow, well, if could've I could have seen that guy him. in the dark.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> so I was like, like wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, never
1: seen any quote from him yeah, on that, that before. That never made it into the.
0: No, that wasn't on a t-shirt. The like
1: calendars or the magnets. <laughs> never, never saw that one.
0: <laughs> but it was really cool to talk about archetypes. And he really stressed the importance of dreams and the symbols that come to you in dreams that somehow it's your unconscious speaking to you, telling you what you need. And then you're supposed to be able to interpret that in the conscious world. And it's this kind of dialogue between you and the dream world. It's really interesting how that was all laid out so long ago. You know, he's talking about hanging out with Freud in like 1909
1: right and he's yeah when he was talking about his parents you know when you grow up in the 70s of the previous century meaning like the 1870s right. <laughs> the
0: good old 1870s yeah
1: you know um yeah the dream piece when he was talking about the alchemical symbol of the circle and the square um and it was just I was thinking about what he was saying about how that symbol specifically is about bringing order, um, the deity or the self and how the self is the deity and all of that. And just how the dream world would have access to not only the subconscious, but the all conscious and would able, be able to bring that symbol in to sort of reorder while he's sleeping. Like my mind is in chaos or I have this problem. And then that symbol comes to you to sort of like reorder or ground you or kind of reset you back into homeostasis while you're sleeping so that you can perhaps try again the next day in a different frequency
0: hopefully if you can interpret it or maybe or even not
1: though maybe it's just subconscious maybe it comes as a way maybe there's a part of you that knows
0: yeah maybe it does hit that subconscious mind that just instantly translates it yeah. knows exactly what it is, even though you're not aware of what the hell's going on. A lot of our functions as humans are that way. There's just mm-hmm. a lot of subconscious energy and information processing going on that gets us through our daily lives. One thing uh, that I thought that he said was interesting was the fantasy has energy. So if you're visualizing, you're fantasizing, you're, you're in that dimension, the conscious dream dimension where you're just like closing your eyes and you're, thinking about a thing and it's and it's could be wild it could be totally chaotic that in itself has energy there's some form of energy in that and in a way it makes it real in its own way i thought that that was really interesting i've never heard that before well
1: it immediately made me think of thoughts are things and all of those great thinkers of the turn of the century that we're talking about, you know, manifesting your reality by putting your thought into action and all the, you know, listening to Manly P. Hall and then some of those new thought thinkers like Ralph Waldo Trine and James Allen and Genevieve Barron and and people that, you know, had that idea just a little bit actually I guess maybe around the same time really yeah,
0: it must have been must really have around popular the same
1: time to be thinking that yeah you're that everything starts with a fantasy or with a dream or with an idea and then you put that into action
0: yeah I did hear a lot of the personal development speaker uh, points that seem to come up throughout different personal development seminars with different people in Carl Jung's speech, like he was talking about these things, they probably got that from, stud, from studying Carl Jung.
1: Right, and, and I feel like now they reference him, like some of the newer speakers in that same realm would yeah. reference, and I've heard Bob Proctor say things about Carl Jung. And
0: so yeah, and he was still going at 84, just like Bob Proctor.
1: Yeah, I did actually write that down, I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, and they're... They're something, not working, they're providing service. So yeah, they do feel like they're done till
0: they graduate. And something about hitting 11 years old, he had that realization, he became a individual person, you know, and tapped into that individuality. But then if he eventually helped people understand their collective oneness and the collective consciousness, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, it seems like the interviewer at the end seemed to suggest evolution into some, collective mind like a hive mind i don't know how i feel about that
1: i thought it was interesting if you think of just the time like if if you think about that conversation now like submerging into a virtual world or some sort of collective you know even the
0: matrix the
1: matrix or even social media that the metaverse. Co- the metaverse or even just you know some of the basic social media where everybody's, you know, attaching onto these things and all these ideas trickle through like dominoes that in 1959, he had this concept, which would kind of lean into, you know, what he was saying about the collective consciousness. He could pull things out of the ether and say them and, and that, that, it could be 1959 or it could be 2022 and those, you
0: know, yeah, I wonder how many people were dreaming about cell phones in the seventies. And <laughs> that would were, be interesting. They were dreaming about there's people faces on the screen and their life is on there. I don't know what that means. And they're there's like, Oh, book. you're crazy. You're there's going to the nut house <laughs> book of their life on a screen. You're like, what? We have to analyze all of these, uh, psychoanalysts you know of the 70s the 80s the 90s yeah there's some of those stories because he had that nazi reference the hitler reference where he talked about how people were dreaming about this happening all over the country all over the world that he was treating personally before it happened and and there's so many other instances throughout history where you know people dream the future and then it happens it's just coming from somewhere the information is percolating right in that other dimension record yeah and we're just like bouncing off of that there's so much going on we learned a lot from carl young i think do you do feel you, like
1: you learned a lot i do do you feel more settled and that you know that an acorn will become an oak not a donkey
0: i thought about that that's very comforting to know that there's no chance of planting an acorn and getting a donkey though you know you could be a donkey farmer if you wanted to, if it was that way. <laughs> Maybe. But good to know. But, but yeah.
1: Um, oh. Yeah. So many things. Um, one thing I thought that would be interesting, you know, in the very, very beginning of that first interview when he was talking about that existing determinants never waver. Like talking about your, your genes, your... Uh, lineage or history all those things like determine perfectly who you are but now there's this huge study of epigenetics and looking at the environment and looking at how you can supersede not only your genetics or your astrology chart or or whatever that sort of map and set you've been given that you have the conscious ability to push beyond that and that would be really interesting to sit down and have a conversation with him about that, which wasn't really a concept at that time.
0: What's it called again? Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Yeah.
1: Bruce Lipton wrote a pretty popular book on okay. the subject.
0: Not the tea guy. No. The tea keeps coming up.
1: No. <laughs> the tea keeps coming
0: tea. up. Tea. Just tea in general.
1: But No, not not that guy.
0: Okay. Well. Thank you all for listening with us and taking notes and learning from Carl Jung. You're probably not going to do that again in your life. Maybe later. I don't know. Maybe there's other videos. There really isn't much going on as far as audio and video recordings with this person, this significant person who influenced the psychedelic world, uh, the intellectual world, just the thinkers, you know, and people that want to learn. How we construct our thinking, our mind, it, it all came from people like Freud and even more so young. I'm more of a Jungian person, I would say. You know, I believe in the collective unconscious that Freud didn't, you know. I'm on that tip. I'm on the Jungian tip, <laughs> man.
1: Um, did you know he was a painter and a sculptor as well?
0: That- yeah, yeah. Right. He sculpted that painting, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I had no idea. actually. <laughs>
1: yeah, I thought that was interesting. Well, that he was painting his dreams and and uh doing that uh I guess sculpting, engraving in the stone like he was talking oh, about. Right. And, right yeah,
0: yeah. Um that was interesting. Yeah, so, he's an artist.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely.
0: I mean he there's only so much thinking you can do in a day before you gotta do something tactile. Gotta do some art. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get your hands on something. So
1: Um lastly I just wanna say Or touch on that little thing that he said about death at the end. That was towards the end of that last interview um, when he was saying to live as though you have centuries and to always be looking forward. Like I have centuries to go and just keep on moving. And that if you are looking back, you become stiff and petrified. And that's such, you know, that's a paradigm to become that older, petrified, stiff, can't do things. And looking back, it's a retraction, a retraction rather than he's like, Oh, just live as though you have centuries to go and there's no
0: problem. Yeah. Live as if um, you're going to live forever.
1: Yeah. That was a good, uh, last point I liked.
0: Yeah. I loved interview. that too. Coming from literally the guy, right. Still like working at 84 and killing it. Yeah. yeah. Like literally like the guy, Carl Young just told you that yourself. There's so <laughs> much in there that he just told us. I can't believe he showed up on the podcast of all keep living people. people keep living, you know, in the other dimension. Thank you. Uh, Carl Gustav Young for, uh, being on our podcast in the third dimension here in this time stream via recording, everyone, I hope you learned something from that. Don't forget to check out Blue Cobra CBD, you know, we love those guys. And what's coming, like I said, is incredible. Brian, thank you for being here. Of course, I have to remind people vitalforceherbs.com that's your thing, herbs. My thing herbs <laughs> as you're such thanks. a great guest just recently we yeah, talked thanks about. thanks for having me. Herbalism. Yeah, we're well, a resident herbalist. We have a resident alchemycologist a resident psychic, a resident herbalist, a resident psychedelic guy Ken Vabs, he's coming back on the show I hope his book came out. We're going to hopefully get him back on the show. He's also in his 80s. So we have a lot of residents. We have resident listeners. And that's you. Thank you so much for being here. We will see you next week. Join us. Midnight on Earth.